You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. What are the 2009 recommendations for managing patients with ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction, or STEMI, and PCI? Our guest today is Dr. Judith Hockman. Harold Snyder Family Professor of Cardiology, Clinical Chief of Cardiology, Director of the Cardiovascular Clinical Research Center, and Co-Director of the New York University HHC Clinical Translational Science Institute in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Hockman. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are ready to talk about brand new guidelines hot off the presses. Maybe you could tell us, rather than have a new, entirely new guideline for STEMI and for percutaneous coronary intervention, this is called a focused update. What exactly is a focused update and why is that occurring? Right. So a focused update is really in response to the rapidity with which new information is coming out. Clinical trials are reported. They're published. And physicians and nurse practitioners, healthcare providers need to make decisions. To do a revision of an existing guideline used to require up to three years. So now there's a process for a more rapid response where new evidence is reviewed in an ongoing fashion to more efficiently respond to new science and new treatment trends that could have a significant impact on patient care and patient outcome. And so the evidence is reviewed at least twice a year by experts on these panels for the AHA and ACC. And the process is pretty rapid in terms of a focused update, just focusing on what's new, not reprinting what's been published before. So the goal here is to provide a real-time guidance to practitioners, people who have read about clinical trials or heard the announcements maybe at the national meetings, but are not exactly sure how relevant that is to daily practice. Absolutely. There's one more point I want to make about guidelines, that they are not a cookbook for care. They are guidelines. They are not, you must do this. And it is incredibly important to use clinical judgment with each patient that you see, because each patient is different. And in fact, the art and skill of medicine largely is still making the correct diagnosis. Once you know the diagnosis and you know if the patient has contraindications to something, you can look at the guidelines and say, well, is this uh, treatment uh, efficacious? But you have to make the correct diagnosis first. That's still really, really difficult. You know, it's such an excellent point that you make. I I was just this weekend reading some things about intuition and guidance from our intuitive senses. But the greatest decisions are made, just as you said, with a fund of knowledge, a strong foundation of the science and the evidence. And then on top of that, integrating one's clinical judgment uh, in to arrive at a decision with the patient, the individual patient. Right. And one of the biggest problems is recognition of what's happening. You could have a patient present with chest pain, have an EKG done, they really have an occluded artery, a fresh occlusion, namely a STEMI, but in fact, you're not seeing ST elevation on the EKG. You may just be seeing hyper-QT waves across the precordium, or you may be seeing anterior lead ST depression, V1, V2, V3, with upright T waves, which may be representing ST elevation on the back of the heart, posterior myocardial infarction, posterior wall STEMI. And if you miss that, if you don't diagnose that this is STEMI, you haven't even had an opportunity to apply early reperfusion guideline recommended care, you've missed the boat. So making the diagnosis is incredibly important. Judy, let's go through some of the specific recommendations. 
Some of them are brand new, others are modifications, and I guess there have been a few deletions. You've been living with this for the last year plus. Do you want to just pick one and tell us more about it? Okay, so cyanopyridines. There is an update related to a new agent, Prasagril, that was tested in a large randomized trial, Triton, testing clopidogrel versus prasigrel in patients with an acute coronary syndrome who underwent either immediate intervention, like primary angioplasty, or delayed intervention, angioplasty several days following the acute event. So the guidelines now, in fact, the, the Food and Drug Administration has approved prasigrel for use in patients such as those that were enrolled in the Triton study. And the guidelines have incorporated uh, prasigrel as a class one recommendation. And the doses are provided as to uh, what should be given. It's uh, 60 milligrams as soon as possible for primary uh, PCI. Clopidogrel regimen, which has been around for a long time, it has been a class one recommendation, has remained a class one recommendation. And the dose is 300 to 600 milligrams, given as early as possible, before at the time of primary or non-primary angioplasty. So that's a a big change. A new uh, agent was added, and it was given a class one recommendation. Staying with both Prasigril and also your comments earlier about sticking with ones and threes in terms of recommendations, there's a class, a new class three for Prasigril when it should not be used. Is that correct? Yes, there is. The investigators noted in that study that patients with a prior history of stroke or transient ischemic attack had higher rates of bleeding and, in fact, intracranial bleeding and adverse events it's recommended class three not to use prasigrel for patients with a prior history of stroke or history of transient uh, ischemic attack. Actually, if you look at the FDA package insert, there are a number of other cautions related to age and patient weight, low body weight in terms of the use of prasigrel. So I would advise people with any new agent you're using to look at the package insert for the full prescribing information. Good advice there. Let's talk about drug-eluting stents. Some news there in terms of being able to use drug-eluting stents, primary PCI, and STEMI. Well, that's right. Before the update, we had very limited data on the use of drug-eluting stents in the acute MI setting because it's a thrombogenic uh, environment, and we were a little concerned about thrombosis in fact, on these stents. Since then, there have been trials that really show that they are safe to use. And in fact, we know that drug-eluting stents, although they have a risk of late stent thrombosis and required prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy, that they do have a much lower rate of restenosis than bare metal stents. So the guidelines now say class 2A, it's reasonable to use a drug-eluting stent as an alternative to a bare metal stent for primary angioplasty, primary PCI in STEMI. And there's also a class 2B recommendation related to the certain clinical and anatomic setting in which a drug-eluting stent could be considered. But the one in STEMI is the class 2A recommendation. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Judith Hockman. 
Harold Snyder Family Professor of Cardiology, Clinical Chief of Cardiology, Director of the Cardiovascular Clinical Research Center, and Co-Director of the New York University HHC Clinical Translational Science Institute in New York City. We're discussing management of acute coronary syndrome, STEMI, and PCI according to the new 2009-focused update. My framework here is to sort of talk to our audience about what the new recommendations are. There's a 2B that's new uh, in regard to stenting left mains. Yes, that's big news. (laughs) (laughs) Big news, and I know that a lot of the interventionalists are going to be very uh, happy with this. It used to be class 3. Do not stent a left main unless the patient is not suitable for bypass surgery. But based on randomized trial data, and particularly the syntax trial, it is now a class 2B. So the guideline actually reads, PCI, the left main coronary artery with stents, as an alternative to bypass surgery may be considered in patients with anatomic conditions that are associated with a low risk of PCI procedural complications and clinical conditions that predict an increased risk of adverse surgical outcomes. And that's a level of evidence B based on randomized trial data such as syntax. So that's big news. That and is, as I said, that's we'll very big make news. make a lot of the interventionalists very happy. Judy, out of all the new recommendations coming out or the modifications that have been made, many of which are exciting and, as you say, commit us to additional uh, long-term follow-up, One of the ones that I guess is my favorite is the recommendation about STEMI centers. Yes, absolutely. So Mission Lifeline has been a major initiative of the American Heart Association to basically have heart attack patients treated like trauma patients. In other words, where, you know, there are now trauma centers all over the country where a patient has very rapid access to the most sophisticated care for centers capable of managing trauma patients. Well, primary angioplasty has, in general, been shown to be superior to fibrinolysis therapy when done very promptly and by experts. And therefore, we like people to be able to get prompt PCI by expert centers who have a lot of experience And it's got to be very rapid. So you need a system of care put in place. You can't be making an ad hoc decision about transfer and not transfer and which hospital should we transfer to. You know, you just don't have time. Time is muscle. Probably the most important part and the most exciting part of this update is the class one recommendation that each community should develop a STEMI system of care that follows standards at least as stringent as those developed for the American Heart Association's national initiative, Mission Lifeline, which I just referred to. And those include four major points. One is ongoing multidisciplinary team meetings that include EMS, non-angioplasty-capable hospitals that get STEMI patients, and angioplasty, PCI-capable hospitals that receive STEMI patients, these multidisciplinary teams should evaluate outcomes and quality improvement data. There should be a process for pre-hospital identification and activation, so you should be able to identify a STEMI patient in the ambulance and activate a team 
that can come into the cardiac catheterization laboratory at the same time that the ambulance is transporting the patient to the STEMI center. There should be destination protocols for the for STEMI centers that receive these patients. In other words, they should have their team on the way in if it's off hours um, because they know a patient is also on the way in, so they can very rapidly open that artery. And lastly, that there should be a transfer protocol for those centers that don't do angioplasty for patients who arrive at their door. Half the patients, in fact, walk in. So it's not by ambulance. And it's important for them to identify who's a primary angioplasty candidate, and in particular, those who are ineligible for fibrinolytic drugs and or in cardiogenic shock. In addition, there's another recommendation, which is class 2A, that it's reasonable for high-risk patients who get fibrinolytic therapy at a hospital that is not angioplasty capable to be transferred as soon as possible to an angioplasty capable facility where they can then undergo angioplasty as they need it or as part of what we call a pharmacoinvasive strategy. And this really is based on two new studies called caress and transfer, showing some benefit in recurrent ischemic events and recurrent risk of heart attack in patients who get fibrinolytic therapy and then are transferred to a tertiary care center. So in fact, if a patient presents very early after STEMI onset, and it's going to take a while because they live quite a distance from an angioplasty-capable center, it is very important to give them the fibrinolytic therapy to get that artery open because time is muscle, and, and the golden period is the first few hours where you really save the heart muscle. I see this as a way to build upon the much more focal project, the Door to Balloon D2B program, to system-wide, community-wide, getting all players involved to help accelerate that time to adequate treatment for patients. Absolutely. The goal is still, you know, 30 minutes from first medical contact with a heart attack symptom to either fibrinolytic therapy or 90 minutes to having that artery open in the cath lab. And, and that's a high bar, but we should be able to achieve it. This is, you know, the United States of America. We've got uh, a lot of investment in healthcare and a lot of great healthcare providers. Actually, you know, the, the biggest obstacle to reducing time to treatment, as healthcare providers, we have dramatically reduced the time it takes to treat a patient. What has not changed in 25 years is the time it takes a patient to actually seek medical care for a heart attack. We have to educate them. We've been talking with Dr. Judith Hockman about management of patients with ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction, and the need for PCI, according to the new 2009 Focus Update. Dr. Hockman, thank you for being our guest today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Wright. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.